Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you the man who showed us what a real house party and pajama jammy jam were like. The man who helped turn Eddie Murphy into a romantic lead. A writer, director, producer who's worked in TV, film, award shows, documentaries, comic books, and produced the Oscar-nominated Django Unchained. Yes, it's Reginald Hudlin. Mr. Hudlin's film education began at Harvard, despite the fact that the elite Ivy League institution wasn't particularly interested in having their students create mainstream films. Harvard's kind of embarrassed to have any arts programs at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> they have this thing called visual and environmental studies. <laughs> and it's like honors only, so you have to have, to have a certain GPA to even be in the program. And it's multidisciplinary, so you study film, photography, graphic arts, and architecture. It's actually a really good program, right? But they really just did documentary film. Like Ross McElwee was like my favorite professor there. He makes really interesting documentaries that you should see. And I said, I want to make a fiction film. And they go, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. <laughs> well, I mean, in my whole, our whole year, we were kind of rebels. Like my same year was Jonathan Mostow, who did Breakdown and U571, you know. Right. It was a bunch of us. We all eventually kind of made our way to Hollywood. Uh, and I think they changed the rules to make sure that would never happen again. <laughs> that, was, that, that was a bad batch. <laughs> the Hollywood hacks instead of suffering for their art. What, what was that about? <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I did a short film of House Party and uh, like a 20-minute thesis. I mean, again, the idea, let me make a short movie that I can... So they look, I can tell a story. FYI. His classmate Jonathan Mostow went on to direct U571, Terminator 3, and the terrific Kurt Russell thriller, Breakdown. Reginald Hudlin clearly had the talent to also succeed in this industry. He just needed to be in the rooms where it happened. I wrote a script and I was working very, I worked in advertising, I taught, whatever kind of job. Anything that gave me access to equipment so I could just keep making little things. And then She's Gotta Have It came out and Suddenly, there was a window of opportunity, and I went to a party at Nelson George's house. So everyone was there, like Russell Simmons was there. He was getting ready to make Tougher Than Leather. I was like, oh, please let me direct Tougher Than Leather. He was like, some kid from Harvard beat it. <laughs> what do you know about hip hop? And then, um, and then Spike was there, and he goes, I got this script for the Otis Redding story. I don't want to do it, but I told him they should call you. I'm like, I mean, I called them on Sunday. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. So they called me back and they said, we don't want to do the oldest writing story, but we're going to do a movie with Janet Jackson and The Time. Except The Time, they had big hit records. And you're both like, well, who are either of them? And that was my first professional job, like writing that script, which went nowhere. But I made enough money from writing that script to buy a computer. And on that computer, I wrote the spec script for House Party as a feature. And I was prepared to make it independently. And then an exec at New Line called and said, oh, I saw you a little short, and uh, you know, do you have a movie? Yes, I do. 
Yeah, I mean, opportunity is a cubic millimeter. That, right, it does this. <laughs> right? So when that happens, do you, are you ready to jump through? Or, oh, I gotta put my sneakers on. <laughs> Window holes. <laughs> I'm in my drawers. <laughs> Window clothes. <laughs> Sleep with your clothes on. There's the window. <laughs> the success of House Party led to Boomerang starring Eddie Murphy, Ladies Man, countless TV projects, and becoming president of entertainment for BET. And then a few years ago, Quentin Tarantino made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Well, Quentin and I have been friends for a long time. And, I mean, over 15 years. And when you're friends with Quentin, you talk about movies. Big surprise. <laughs> and one night, it was actually an Oscar party, we got on the topic of slave films. And I expressed how I hated pretty much all of them. And that they were all movies about being victims. And for me, there was only one great movie about slavery. And it was called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! And until there was a movie like that about the American experience, I just wasn't interested. And we kind of kept going back and forth and back and forth. And I said, look, I, I get it. And those movies you're mentioning, they were made with the best intentions in the world. But for my personal satisfaction, I'd rather see Fred Williamson in The Legend of Nigger Charlie. Now, that's not a movie anyone in this room has seen. I said, you know, and the truth is, I can't remember a frame of The Legend of Nigger Charlie. I saw it when I was a kid. I saw it when it came out in the theater. But I remember how it made me feel. It made me feel great. And I just thought, well, why can't I feel like that? So that was just a conversation. You know, we have them all the time. And, you know, again, one of the nice things about being a friend of Quentin is you get invited to the editing room to see the movie when it's still 99 but not 100% finished or get to read his new script. So he calls me last April and says, hey, it's a publication day party, you know, having a bunch of friends over, come by, get the new script. Great. So come over and I see my friends and he hands me the script and goes, you planted the seed, this is the tree. So I go, oh, okay. So I then uh, went home, read the script, he kept calling, calling, calling. You read it? You read it? What's <laughs> I go, I read it. He goes, yeah. What'd you think? I go, I really, I love it. Really? Yeah, I really love it. Do you have notes? Oh, yeah, I have notes. So we like talked and went through all my notes. He goes, oh, those are good notes. I go, oh, well, thank you. I'm glad to help. And, you know, I can't wait to see the movie. Oh, no, 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 no. No, this one, we're, we're, you know, we're doing this one together. Really? And I, at this point, literally, I was like, yeah, right. And he's like, no, I'll talk to Stacey Sher. Everyone thinks it's a great idea for you to be on board. So three days later, we're meeting with the studios. And a week after that, we were in Louisiana scouting locations. That was that. Quentin's Land apparently has the fastest green lights in all of Hollywood. When Mr. Tarantino decides he's going to do a movie, it happens. Though he collaborates really well, his writing remains a solo journey. Quentin just writes alone. And the only person who was aware of the screenplay being developed was Pilar Savone of the right. three producers, because, you know, she works with Quentin all the time. Right. Daisy and I did not know we were going to be involved until the night of that party. <laughs> <laughs> like, but, you know, so we read it and we loved it. And then 
you know, we would just talk about it. We would talk about the content of the script endlessly. You know, he and I had long conversations talking with the actors and, you know, you know, Quentin says, you know, he writes a novel and then he adapts as a novel every day. You know, because you deal with the reality of the location and yes. like, you know, do you get a new idea or is that impractical or should we merge it? And he also shoots in what he calls emotional order, which is not quite continuity order, but he, he likes to shoot the key scenes in a certain way so he can decide where he needs more or less as he makes those nips and tucks every day. Absolutely, he's the maestro on the set, you know, he's the boss, but he's very sensitive and listens to his actors and to everyone on the set. He's, he's taking input from everyone and processing it, you know, in his own way. Even though Reginald Hudlin has known him for years and collaborated closely with him on Django, he still is not quite sure how his friend comes up with his remarkable ideas. He's a genius, and the genius is never more evident than his writing. We don't talk necessarily a lot about the technical side of his writing, other than, you know, he's a self-educated guy, right? I mean, he dropped out, I don't know at what point, but there's certainly no college degree going on. But he's smarter than almost anyone I know. And he has read so much and seen so much and written so much. He has written books of film criticism on his favorite authors that just sit there. They are not published. He just writes them as an exercise. So he understands craft thoroughly. He knows it so well, he knows when to abide by the rules and he knows when to break the rules. And it's all done with full knowledge. Uh, the one thing I do know is that he doesn't work from an outline. He comes up with themes and ideas and characters like he wrote the opening scene of this film, you know, where Schultz, you know, rides up and, you know, encounters the chain gang. My good man, did you simply get carried away with your dramatic gesture or are you pointing your weapon at me with lethal intention? Last chance, fancy pants. Oh, very well. And when he wrote that first scene, he knew he had to write the rest of the movie to find out what happened next. <laughs> and that's what's amazing about him, is that he is master filmmaker and audience at the same time. Of all the magic tricks of Quentin Tarantino, to me that is one of the greatest. That he never loses sight of that. Because sometimes as we get caught up in whatever our technical craft tricks, we lose sight of the end goal, which is to rock the house. And he never does that. And you know, he's ruthless about never taking the easy way out. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why the shootout happened, because originally, you know, he was gonna get swarmed and you know, knocked out and wake right, up right, right. hanging upside down. And he just thought, well, that's kind of cheesy. And when he was rehearsing the scene, Jamie said, he asked him, well, what would you do? I said, oh, you know, my man just died. I would go to him. He goes, oh, you wouldn't go to your wife because, you know, you know, Jamie's really big on protecting the love story aspect of the film, which is the heart of the film. He said, well, no, not in this moment. In this moment, it's about me and my best friend. And he said, really? And that was really like the, now I have to rethink everything. 
And, you know, and the rethink everything means like, well, what would you do? Then you would take his God and you would do this and you would do this. And, but, you know, could you really get out? No, you couldn't really get out. I mean, you know, so he just played it through. And he was not scared of throwing everything up in the air. He's always willing to surrender himself to the organic moment. In order to find these organic moments, Quentin Tarantino works tirelessly with his performers, all of whom are willing to give sweat, tears, and blood for their performances. In the case of Leonardo DiCaprio, that last part turned out to be literal. I wasn't literally on the set when it happened, but it absolutely did happen. He had done the scene a hundred million times, and that time the glass was a little off, and his hand slam was a little off, and it went out and it disintegrated the glass. I mean, it literally was like a magic trick, like poof. And all the teeny shards just went into his hand. Hey! Lay your palms flat on that tabletop! If you lift those palms off that turtle shell tabletop, Mr. Pooch is gonna let loose with both barrels that sawed off. And I talked with him after it. I was like, so what were you thinking? And he was like, oh, I messed up. And then he was like, well, I'm just gonna keep going through it. And then he was like, Am I bleeding? Yeah, I'm bleeding. <laughs> I mean, he's still doing the scene. He's killing it. He's killing it. And then he goes, well, do I play it? He goes, yeah, I'm a ham. And then he, like, and then he started playing the blood. And uh, then he finished the take. And the actors were just like in awe. You know, kind of like this split feeling of, we want to applaud and we want to get you to a hospital. <laughs> And you can see when you look at the take later, the actors are like, oh, like, <laughs> um, and we took him to the hospital and came back. And because the blood was a pretty extreme thing, Quentin wasn't sure if he wanted to play the blood or not. So from that point on, he shot everything both ways, with Bloody Hand and without Bloody Hand. The Bloody Hand only deepened DiCaprio's performance and was a thrilling dramatic moment for the audience. But when you're trying to produce these blood-soaked, organic moments of inspiration, well, it's not so easy. But when making movies, sometimes it's necessary. You know, it's challenging because when he comes in and goes, you know, this scene is wrong. I'm gonna shut down for a day and let's think about it. Okay. Yeah. And then the next day comes back and says, you know what I need? I, I think we need a, I think I need every stuntman. Every stunt, every stunt man. Okay, let's get every stunt man here. And that became the big shootout scene that you saw. That was not scripted. Fortunately, at this point in my career, I've been at every point in the circle. Right. I've been a writer and a director and a producer and an executive. I ran a network for several years. Right. So a big part of it is literally understanding the other person's problems. You know, because if you're a jerk, and you're like, hey, man, we're just doing our thing. You just got to deal with it. <laughs> you know, you're being right. a jerk. Right. So you have to say, this is why this is going to work out, and this is how yes. we're going to manage it financially. You know, you have to provide sanity. And in a fundamentally insane business, you have to say, there is sanity and reason going on here. We are not unreasonable people. And everything we're doing, albeit unconventional, is toward success. And... We, we want you to buy into our reasoning. And that's the thing. I mean, look, a couple of times in my career, I've had 800-pound gorillas. I mean, when I directed a movie with Eddie Murphy, where it's just like, the studio said, 
you can't have a helicopter. I'm like, oh, okay. So I was talking with Eddie and we're describing the scene. He goes, hey, didn't you have a helicopter? I said, yeah, but it's okay. We got this new idea. No, no, no. You said you wanted a helicopter. Yeah, Eddie, but it's fine. I got a whole new idea. It's better. And he goes, get him on the phone. <laughs> okay, so the helicopter. And then what happens? Just because he's just like, no, you, you, if that's what you originally wanted, you should have it. And, you know, Quentin is a guy with Final Cut. Quentin is a guy with one of the best track records in Hollywood. He just made nothing but hits. And he is ruthless in protecting his vision because he knows his artistic vision is what made all that other stuff happen. At the same time, he's very aware of being a partner. And, you know, like, he can't just leave his partners high and dry. They are writing very large checks to make this happen. So our job is to facilitate that relationship and send those messages. The fact is, when you're a jerk, like in life, right? When you are a jerk and you have all the leverage, then there's all these people waiting for the window of opportunity. <laughs> hey, you are no longer so high. You are close enough to stab! <laughs> One collaborator who's close enough for the director to stab, or to be a shoulder to cry on, is the editor. And ever since his first movie, Quentin Tarantino had relied on the wonderful Sally Menke to cut his movies to life. Unfortunately, she passed away before Django. Forcing him to find another editor, he trust with his newest baby. Well, obviously, you know, losing Sally was a huge blow for us on every level. I mean, she was a wonderful human being and you know you just look forward to being with her she was an extraordinary person an extraordinary editor deeply respected throughout the industry and a key 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 part of his team so you know there was a lot of concern about okay well who now what what does that mean so when he chose fred you know everyone felt great but i especially felt great because fred was an assistant editor on kill bill and that's where we became friends because you know, he'd be around and he seemed really cool. And then after you know, a screening, he'd pull me aside and we'd have a comic book conversation. Again, all of, you know, this is back when, if you read comic books, you had to be in the closet about it. So you'd be like, oh, you know, you're, 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 you're cool with Dennis Cowan, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And um, so it's like, oh, we share this secret important thing. Yeah. So Fred and I were always really cool. And I knew that Fred was ready for it. And you know, Fred had gone on to become an editor himself and one of the one of the two editors on the last Fast and the Furious movie and you know, having building a great reputation. So every, there was a lot of, you know, concern because we had a very tight post-production schedule. Basically had to finish the movie in seven weeks. 130 days worth of footage to be cut down in seven weeks. And, you know, the challenge of not only just getting a coherent story, but tone. Yeah. Tone, tone, tone. The biggest challenge in this film, right? How to not shortchange the shocking nature of slavery, right? To not undersell the horrors of the institution. At the same time, to make it a film that was watchable, even entertaining, entertaining, right? So it was a very short amount of time to do very delicate work. And Fred accomplished it. So, you know, an amazing, amazing piece of work. 
Fred Raskin's accomplishments are all the more amazing considering the scope of this project. Cutting even the lowest budget film in that time frame is tough, but add the grandeur of Django and its many locations, and it is borderline miraculous. Candleland we built, interior and exterior. What happened, we went scouting in, you know, Don Johnson's mansion. We found, I think it may have been the first, they have what's called Plantation Row. They have all these preserved plantations and they're all like a half hour from each other. So we went there and we just loved it right away, like the double stairwell and just crazy and ridiculous. We said, this is perfect. Look at this big yard. And right. So we're just looking around and we're trying to figure out how many different scenes from the movie could we shoot in one location yeah. without having to move. So we went to the back of the plantation, which was just huge sugarcane fields. And we were looking and looking around and then I said, Quentin, Look at that road. It was just this big red dirt road that just went on, you know, into infinity. I said, isn't that the road to Candyland? And he said, it is. <laughs> and we said, well, let's just build a mansion back here. Wow. And we knew we had to build it because we were going to blow it up. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so you couldn't use this real one. So we built the exterior there and then on sound stages, in New Orleans, we built the interior. And I mean, we didn't blow up the interiors, but by the last month, they were literally just drenched in blood. <laughs> it was just like this huge, like working in a Jackson Pollock painting every day. <laughs> I mean, there was no digital blood. All the blood you see is Tarantino red. He has his own blood color. And you know, the same guys who do Walking Dead, those are his, uh, his effects guys. And almost all the effects are practical. So we just, this blood just kept piling up, piling up. So you just were walking. <laughs> when Django Unchained was released, the copious amounts of blood and carnage did not cause anywhere near as much controversy as the film's language. When the language is strong, but for me the linguistic violence is the least shocking, provocative things in the film. I mean, when the whole, oh my God, you we've counted the number of times you say the word nigger in the film. I'm like, did you see the movie? Did you see the movie and that's the first thing you want to talk about? You didn't see a man getting eaten by a dog? <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't get that. That wouldn't be the first thing I want to talk about. Um, but as I was saying earlier, the issue is you have to tell the truth about this subject, you know? I mean, there are a lot of films about the Holocaust, which is good, because I believe in what the Jewish community says, that we should never forget. That they should never forget this horror, and they should draw strength from it, and the world should never forget, so we can remember what we as human beings, what we're all capable of doing. And slavery is a Holocaust, and shooting on a plantation is no different from shooting at Auschwitz, right? So you have to be true to the horror of what you're doing. At the same time, if you make this powerful statement that nobody wants to see because it's a bad time at the movies, I mean, because at the end of the day, people work all week. They work real jobs. So if you're working at a car factory in Detroit, okay, and you've got a day off, and you're gonna spend $30 on tickets plus popcorn, plus get a babysitter and all that stuff. Like, you're not paying to see the bad time. 
You're going to go see Taken 2. I'm not knocking Taken 2. I'm, I'm big on Takens. But, so I'm saying at the end of the day, you have to make a movie that people want to see, especially if you're trying to send a message. Right? So if those are your two goals, then everything else is execution. For Reginald Hudlin, Django was one of the most special projects he ever worked on, even before its critical and box office success, thanks in no small part to how Quentin Tarantino would run his set. He's a big family guy. He loves shooting movies. His joy at what he does every day is radiant. And if you don't feel that same, I mean, you've got to be a Grinch not to have that kind of spirit. So you're just, you know, every hundred reels, there's a shot. You know, on the weekends, we convert one of the sound chases to a screening room. He brings movies from his collection, and we watch and we discuss. One of the best roles he has, and you guys can try this yourselves, it's a, it's a bold move. There's no electronics allowed on set. No phones, no laptops, no tablets, nothing. Because his thing is like, you don't need to check your Facebook status in between takes. We're here to work, let's work. And it's a withdrawal for a few days. <laughs> and then you really have a great time because you're focused on your job. And as one of the actors said at the end of the film, he goes, I made, movie, I made friends on this set. Uh, that never happens. <laughs> Talk to people. So part of it, I mean, that keeps the spirit together. And the spirit is really key. You know, people need to feel that they're doing something special and unique and different and that this is a unique experience. And the other is to keep your eye on the ball of what is the movie. And a lot of times we would talk about that, you know, Quentin and I would just go, really, is, is this the movie? Is this what's important? And you know, and we would talk about it. And sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no. Because he can go down any rabbit hole and make it really entertaining. Right. But you'll never get done. So you have to just keep going back to finding the heart of the story. And also, like you said, that's a conversation. We all need checks and balances. And that's where the team comes in. One of the saddest things about this movie almost being over is I have to go back to the real world. Because Quentin Land is spectacular. <laughs> it's this purely creative environment. It's literally playing in the sandbox at the highest level of craftsmanship. You know, you're on the set, there are no studio executives, there are, there's nothing. And anything goes as long as it makes the movie better. Like Reginald Hudlin, Tarantino is very much his own man, and definitely has his own voice, which Mr. Hudlin encouraged our students to strive for as well, in order to launch their own careers. Tell the story that you want to tell, as opposed to, you know, this is what's commercial and this is what's hot and all that kind of thing, or this is what my friends say. Like, what is your story from deep in your soul? Because you know what? This could be the last thing you ever make. This, because your first movie could be your last movie. So, like, <laughs> if this is it, you make this movie and then you're driving a taxi for the rest of your life. So, like, this is your epitaph for the 23rd century. And the second thing is, and this may be slightly contradictory to the first statement, is make the movie that isn't being made. Meaning that, you know, there's so many copycats and kind of audition reels for Hollywood. 
And you know, I've always, for better or for worse, tried to zig when others have zagged, right? You know, like, you know, when I first started making movies, you know, it was like, you know, Spike was doing his thing and John was doing his thing. And I was like, wow, I don't want to make that kind of movie. I want to make, like, I want to make risky business. And you know, and from that impulse came House Party, you know, so there's an audience for everything, right? So question is, where do you fit into the universe of things? And what makes an audience want to see your movie versus everything else? A, it's got to be from your heart, because I feel like that sincerity and that integrity resonates through the screen. Even through whatever flaws you may have in your filmmaking, they'll feel you. And make a movie that you know, no one else is making, so you're different by, by your very nature. And just as important in helping to launch a career, remember to be nice. You know, people talk about how short life is. Life is not short. <laughs> life is long. Life is really, really long. And here's the thing about life. People don't die fast enough. <laughs> like those people you don't like, they're still around. I've been in this business 20 years. Those, I mean, so many of those people are still here. So you have to conduct yourself with that knowledge. Because so many people didn't, and like I see them paying the price. And like yeah. I'm always thankful to my parents for home training, right? Just be a decent, reasonable, well-behaved person. It will really, really save you in ways you cannot imagine. With House Party and Boomerang, Reginald Hudlin helped usher in modern black cinema that managed to be both representational and universal. To this day, I can still quote both those movies to death. And with Django Unchained, he has only continued on this path. We want to thank Mr. Hudlin for speaking with our students in the middle of his Oscar campaign season. And thanks to all of you for listening. This episode was based on the Q&A moderated and curated by Tova Leiter co-moderated by me, Eric Connor. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Tova Leiter, Sean Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to all our staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time.